When it comes to living with a dog, did you know that one plus one makes three? Why would I say that? Because your state of mind affects your dog and their feelings affect you. So together, you create an altogether third unique mood state. And depending on how you interact, you can radiate gloom or well-being. And depending on how you both are feeling, your dog can be successful in the world you live in or perhaps shy away from it. I'm Caroline, a certified animal behaviourist with over a decade of helping pet parents like you support their dogs living in our hectic human world. And I'm Linda. I'm a clinical psychologist and I have over 40 years of experience working with families and individuals managing stress and anxiety. We're here to help you and your dog radiate well-being so that both of you can enjoy feelings of happiness, purpose, and joy. Welcome to supporting both ends of the lead. And I think it's time to get started, don't you? So we hear the word stress a lot, don't we, Linda? It's stressful times, I've had a stressful day, my dog is super stressed, or maybe my dog is stressing me out. So we have stress all around us, but Linda, come on, you're the expert here. Can you tell us exactly what stress really is? I certainly will, but first I'm gonna point out that in that introduction, you use stress as a verb, as a noun, as an adjective, and an adverb every single way you can in, in speech. That's how powerful this word is. It invades every way we present information. So stress is certainly a 21st century word. Sure. Um, I decided for defining, which is what psychologists always do at the start of any uh, investigation or discussion, what's the definition to look to the look to the the big guys so i looked at how who the world health organization defines stress and mind which is the you know the british uh, mental health organization charity and they agree uh, so i thought that was really powerful and they describe it as any change that causes physical emotional and or psychological strain and requires us to attend to it or act on it or behave because of it. So stress is basically that which takes you away from what you want to be doing, if you want to look at it another way. It's a powerful distractor and it involves discomfort. So we don't feel right. We have to go back and balance our world. Having said that, that's the majority of the way we think about stress. But if you stop for a moment and think about other times when you're energized, and remember that all emotional feelings are the result of energy, physical energy, then you'll find that there is also good stress. And good stress is when we get really excited or we're really looking forward to something or we're anticipating winning a race just at the beginning. You know, and it's, it's a good feeling, but it's a destabilized feeling. So stress is when you have to attend suddenly to whatever it is. Be that distress, which is the word we use for the bad stuff, or you stress, E-U stress, which is 
the good stuff. We all need stress. That's the last thing I want to say in the definition. Stress, without stress, there is no change. Without change, there is no life. You know, stones aren't stressed, but they're dead. <laughs> so anything that must change or that can change, then it's alive and therefore thriving, growing, and moving through time in a way that um, registers its environment, even a plant. <laughs> so, so let's welcome stress, but we will mainly, I hope, uh, Caroline, both for dogs and <laughs> for people, be talking about stress uh, reduction when it isn't fun and we don't want it. Yeah, and I think that's that as pet parents who live with anxious dogs or behaviourists like myself who work with anxious dogs and the caregivers that live with them, um, we're often focusing on de-stress, on the things that making our dogs worried, anxious, concerned, reactive, whatever you want to call it. Um, mm -hmm. We're thinking about things when they're They've got fear of other people, other dogs, um, sounds, um, you know, what, whatever is in the environment around them that's causing them that de-stress and that anticipation of something negative or pain, whatever it might be. But we often don't think about that eustress. So I love the fact that you were talking about eustress because... Actually, sometimes for our dogs, they can have almost too much of a good thing and then we get some behavioural difficulties. So we have dogs who are overdoing it on their walks. They're chasing that ball nonstop for, you know, half an hour. They're uh, playing with the dogs in the park, but actually, you know, they found it a little bit overwhelming because there was some they couldn't quite read properly and uh, or they got chased by a dog that they couldn't quite outwit. Um, so there's lots of things that can sometimes appear to us, at least that it's just the dog having a grand old time. But sometimes even that th those experiences, whether their dog felt that they were completely positive or a little changeable, can still sometimes cause our dogs that level of arousal that we don't want them to have on an ongoing basis. And this is why I'm always going back to the notion of balance in our dog's lives and making sure that they have that. So yeah, I, I love that, and and you may make me remember something I should have said because I was thinking of toddlers when you were talking about that. The same thing happens with little kids, as you well know from your small human <laughs> probably, um, and I remember when mine were small. Um, but inside us, our emotions, our children, they're the child part of us. So it it happens for us too. And I think the key that unites distress and eustress is that when it gets to the point that it feels like we're out of control, that's when there's trouble. That's when we're afraid or disturbed, even if it was good at the beginning. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, isn't that what you think happens with dogs or am I wrong there? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think this is where we, we just really need to be mindful you know, as you said, we need a certain amount of stress. In fact, studies that showed that rats with a diminished adrenal function, which is all about the kind of process of creating stress, um, uh, were actually difficult to keep alive. So like wow. you said, we need stress for existence and change. And I love the fact that you talked about change, things that need to change need stress. That's such a fabulous, fabulous way to think about it. Um, but when our dogs are living, not only with the experience of of whatever it might be that's a trauma to them a trigger to them to have those experiences of stress but they're also living in these 
hectic human worlds that you'll hear me talk about a lot um, where they have got the disturbances of as we know a lot more through COVID times deliveries coming to the door how many people got many more um, you know postal arrivals coming Um, it's not just one postman a day now it's you know vans turning Mm. up at any time of day Mm. Um, you know they have noises um, if you live in a busy environment there might be building work there might be traffic there's so much in the environment around them that can be stimulating and it's sometimes hard for our dogs to be able to get away from that and I think that's why it can be tricky for dogs who are prone to get anxious and be more hypersensitive, which we'll talk about a little bit later, when there is a lot of stimulus, for them just to be able to get a place of calm, that can be so hard. Uh, yeah, and, and that's a difference there between uh, my end of the lead and yours, is that your dog, for you, dogs quite often don't understand the stress or don't appear to understand we can't ask them so we don't know but they don't appear to understand whereas we often know well there's going to be a loud noise i've got to turn this on for a little while and so we can regulate our stress a little more readily because of our abilities to understand and predict in a way that as far as we know dogs can't do so i think that's good to bear in mind absolutely One of the things I wanted to bring up was uh, what a lot of my clients asked me, which is, well, am I just stressed by nature? Or, Mm -hmm. you know, have I learned how to be stressed? Is is this a genetic thing or, you know, some people more stressy than others? And the answer to that is that it's always both. Um, Each of us is a unique combination of DNA. Nobody else has ever been like you. Nobody else ever will be again, which is a pretty awesome thought. And I hope a good reason for everybody out there to take good care of themselves because you're a a totally rare specimen. (laughs) Um, But you may have certain characteristics which are loaded for genetics, which will make you a little bit more reactive to stress. And those characteristics uh, are uh, impulsivity, you know, the, 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 the need to do something, can't sit still, that, that can be partially genetic. And also whether or not you are uh, reflective, whether you can slow yourself down. You can learn ways to slow yourself down, but for some people it's genetically harder than others. The learning side for humans is very interesting, and maybe this will spark you some ideas for dogs. But the learning side is if we're given too much responsibility too early in life, we may re- overreact to stress because it was so unpleasant that those early memories are quite unpleasant of being loaded with more than you can take care of. Say, for example, and this doesn't happen to everyone where this situation occurs, but say you endured a very stressful divorce when you were uh, a preschooler and uh, maybe your little brother or sister was very upset and as an older sib we always look after them but you couldn't calm them down repeatedly it has to be repeated then that might make you a little bit more reactive to stress so remember the key is repeatedly just to have a memory of something happened once uh, can be distressing but it doesn't mean that you're prone always to overreact to stress so that's my both answer some genetic qualities and some learned characteristics can make you quicker to react doesn't mean you're any less likely to control it though and we'll get onto that later you could, everybody can sort themselves out if they 
really want to, uh, to a degree. And uh, there's always room for improvement. <laughs> I do live by that. And I think that's really interesting because we kind of almost have a double setup of nature and nurture for our dogs. So if we're thinking about nature, we've got the breed traits. So where the dog has developed from, um, what we've set them up for, what roles we've set them up for in the human world. Um, you know, obviously we started with um, wild dogs that we, we then took certain characteristics that we chose and selected and have over time um, created these various different um, domesticated species. Um, then we've got the nature side that comes directly from the parents. So, you know, how anxious or stressed the, the mother was, um, not only um, sort of from her her experience generally in life, but her experience while she's around the puppies and the stress that might be around them. Um, and then nurture-wise, we've got a whole section that we don't have any kind of control over unless we're the breeder themselves if we if we raised our own puppies um, but if you're welcoming a puppy into your life when they're 8 10 12 weeks or if you've got a rescue dog there's a whole section of their life that you've never been a part of and a really important part as well that that sort of first few weeks are really really critical for our puppies and then you've got the nurture side obviously once they've joined you and some of that we can be responsible for um, a lot of it but then we can have things like injuries and illnesses and things like that that can create um, difficult times for our puppies or dogs that you know if they had to have something a bad experience at the vets at an early age that can also cause its own impact on our dog's learning or if it was attacked by another dog at a long, young age that can impact our dog's um, nurturing journey so I think it's interesting how there's kind of Two, two sections to both the nurturing and nature for our dogs. Um, and we really do need to consider the effect of how puppies are raised because, for example, if for that individual dog, they were removed from their mother too early. So one dog might cope absolutely fine leaving its mother at eight weeks. One dog might thrive much more if it left its mum at 12 weeks, at 16 weeks. Um, and we know that actually through studies that if they were moved really way too early, so pre-weaning, pre for example, um, that there can be an impact on the development, um, even down to the gut microbiome, which we know affects so much in terms of how we're feeling, how we're um, experiencing life, um, all of that side of things. And then, you know, we've got the the sad side of puppy, the puppy world, the puppy industry, where if they were born into, say, a puppy farm environment, they might not have had access to daylight, which could impact their circadian rhythms. And we know circadian rhythms are important for so many things, not only sleep and rest, but also how they um, physically um develop and behaviorally as well it can impact that um, which is why our dogs can also feel sad in the wintry months <laughs> um, and it also means that they were socially deprived so not only lack of access to um, to people um, social experience interactions um, with the world uh, but also they might have been restricted in access to their mother who is so important in helping them to learn all kinds of things like just from simple things like life skills of being able to stay clean, um, but all sorts of things. So, yeah, it's it's a big one. And there's so much that we have out of our control when it comes to our dogs, I think. And and I want to put you on the spot because I'm now I'm totally 
wa watching in my mind all the research on mother-infant relationships in humans. Um, do you uh, think that, and th this will probably speak to all those uh, listeners who have a rescue dog, do you feel there's um, that early experience is insurmountable for a dog, or do you feel that um, intervention later in life can um, restore uh, uh, equanimity, can restore a, a more normal response to calm? I know that's a hard question, and I mm. promise I will try to answer it with humans because i uh, that's a big debate in psychology. But could I ask you first? Yeah, it's, it is a tricky one, and, and I hate giving an a it-depends answer, but I think it depends. Um, and... You know, we know that bad experiences impact the brain so much more than positive ones. Yes. So if your dog has from day one, like we know with a lot of street dogs, they can find it really, really hard to come into human environments when they've had so many negative experiences. Perhaps they were thrown out on the streets by a human. So abandonment, they were perhaps kicked and, and shouted at by other humans trying to get them out of their rubbish bins or whatever it is. So we've got fear of aggression. Um, you know, so they could have had lots of different they could have been hit by a car, you know, all of these things, so pain. Um, so if they've had multiple different experiences of stress, both physically and emotionally, it's a lot for us to kind of weave back from. And because we can't create conversations with our dogs through language and help them learn to understand why what's happened to them has happened, we're trying to create a new a new existence for them, a new space for them to feel safe and secure in. And we can do that in many ways, but it depends, I think, on how deep the trauma is as to where in their emotional healing they can get. So for some of our dogs who have had, you know, many no multiple sort of negative experience with people or dogs in the past they may get to a point where they can have some successful relationships and they can build out a circle of trust but they may always go in with a bit of a pessimistic view to new relationships and it may be hard for them to be you know everybody's best friend <laughs> going forward yes. so i think we need to be realistic and look at the dog that's in front of us look at the experience they've had of or what we know of the experience we've, they've had and and just be really mindful of the fact that change takes time and particularly it's going to take time when we can't facilitate the learning through language with our dogs and I think that's the one time you know we can work using positive experiences food and things like that and for me a game changer is when I use um, scent um, so through um, using plant remedies to help change the um, experience of the dog greeting a new person or another dog that can be incredible in terms of game-changing um uh progression in the dog's emotional experience i'm going to interrupt you yeah. right there because you, that's how we met isn't it yes it is it i is. had a rescue dog that uh, just couldn't calm down and after your second visit and from then on um, with your remedies, your various different herbs that you let the dogs choose, which I found fascinating. Um, my, my Molly was upside down on the floor with her legs spread, sound asleep, happy as could be uh, when you left. And it is powerful. And I was a skeptic, so I can really vouch for that. Yeah, there is an incredible power to... Um, plant remedies, essential oils, things that we can use safely and respectfully in 
allowing our dogs to choose their own medicines to heal them that can be a really important part of behavior and and what is the um i'm gonna answer my own question here what is that what is the anecdote for overstressed people what people who can't form intimate bonds with other people because they've had such a bad background it's unconditional love it's a different thing it's saying i don't love you for what you can give me or what you can do for me or what you can achieve that makes me proud but i love you because you are that unique individual unlike anyone else i've ever known or will ever know again and i want to get to know you and help you bring yourself out to the full that takes a long time to to keep convincing the individual calmly of that but that's the herbal medicine for people um and therapy does it but so do you don't have to have therapy for it it's that attitude yeah that's fantastic yeah shall we shall we talk for a minute i'd like to talk for a minute before we go on to you know things we can do we've already mentioned a few things you can do but um i i'd like to talk about the neurochemistry the the what happens in stress because i think not that you need to know it uh, everybody but i think if you do know it you'll feel more confident understanding why the reactions are as they are um you'll caroline you'll have to say what, what this translates to in dogs because obviously i don't know but i will speak for humans here but i think so many carry across so okay. i'm sure there will be a lot of overlaps <laughs> <laughs> okay great well first of all uh, let me say that the the place that triggers alarm that says "Ooh, going out of control here remember whether that's good or bad uh is uh, the amygdala um, which is a, a little organ behind our left ear, basically. And it, it's the powerhouse of the whole brain. And it, it's, it's our fear center. It's a little bit primitive. And I think it's real important to understand that. So the difference between a real threat, so really there is uh, a car driving straight at you, or whether you're in a traffic jam, can't get to your meeting, and are imagining being fired by your boss, the amygdala reacts in exactly the same way. It doesn't make a distinction, which is why we have so much stress now. It's not human's fault in the sense that we have changed in our brain reaction. It's because we don't live in a way that allows us to release our stress. We can't just jump out of the car and, um, you know, run to the boss. You, you can't do that now. So that's real important to know that an imagined stress is just as bad as a real threat. Um, so what happens? Well, um, the hypothalamus, which is another place in, in, our, in our brain uh, that is in control of a lot of emotions and uh, memories, and it has a lot of functions. But anyway, it talks to the adrenal glands. And you mentioned the adrenal glands a little while ago in the rats, Caroline, which was real interesting. I didn't know that. Um, and that's where um, two chemicals that you've probably heard of now, especially since the pandemic, are made. And that's cortisol and adrenaline. And it tells us to make a whole lot of that, or at least to release a whole lot of that. Um, and uh, when that happens, um, our um, heart rate goes up, so we get lots more oxygen into our system. But strangely, you feel like you don't have enough oxygen. So you're, 
you know, breathing really deep. And, and, and that's not useful when it's an imagined stress because the reason for the oxygen is so your muscles are full of power and you're ready to run away or to beat up whatever the threat is that's coming at you or get out of the way, as I say. Um, but um, you, you've got all this extra oxygen that is the last thing you need. Um, so what happens is you get a lot of physiological consequences. You start to feel sick. Uh, many people do. Uh, and the reason is because if you ate something right then and the threat was real, you couldn't run away as fast, could you? So that's a nice natural response. This thing that feels so terrible is natural. We sweat. Why would you sweat? What good is that? Well, if you're cool, you're able to run for longer. So again, this that's unpleasant, but it's a natural response to a threat. Um, you also feel like you can't concentrate, but actually you're concentrating extremely well, but only on one thing. Your brain won't let you do anything except look out where is the danger. Is it here yet? Is it behind me? Where is it? i got to find it. And that's why you can no longer, quote, concentrate. It's because you are concentrating, but not on the thing you might want to concentrate on. Interestingly, for a little while, our immune system shoots up. So we have a stronger immune system. One thing that you might like to have does happen. Why? Can anybody guess out there? Think about it for just a sec. Okay, if you're in danger, you're likely to get wounded, aren't you? So you need to be able to heal that wound fast so you can keep going. And that's why it's primed. The immune system is primed, but it can't do that forever. I'll get onto that in a sec. Um, you also feel hugely energized because you've got all that uh, oxygen in your muscles. And um, one other thing Caroline mentioned uh, a few minutes ago, we're primed to remember negative things. That's also what happens in the brain. The um, I think it's the hippocampus, but don't, but don't quote me there. Uh, wakes up to pick up highly emotional uh, events, particularly negative ones, because that's again primitive. If we remember the positive stuff, like, wow, it's great to walk around on a sunny day, uh, more than we remember that that clumping sound means the Tyrannosaurus Rex is on the way, then we die. <laughs> so you are primed to remember negative stuff at that point, which is why now you'll all understand about post-traumatic stress because the memory is imprinted so deeply. Um, so those are all the things that, that happen. Um, usually when the, th well, all, always, if the threat then disappears or you think, oh, come on, I'll, I, I won't get fired, or you talk to yourself, we'll get on to things you can do. And your threat recedes, whether because you've talked yourself into not being so afraid, or because the car swerved and didn't hit you, then the cortisol and the adrenaline slowly return to normal levels and you get on with your day. What happens in a pandemic or other times when we're under stress continually, continually, continually? That's when your immune system, I'm sorry to have to tell you, goes way down and it's hard to heal wounds. Those of you who've been through the pandemic in a, in a particularly stressful way may find that even now it takes longer for cuts and grazes to heal. It's going to take a while. Um, the fatigue is unbelievable because you've asked so much of your system. Um, 
you, you do find it hard to concentrate because you're still in the habit of searching for danger rather than focusing mm-hmm. on that recipe that you'd like to make for the tonight's dinner or whatever. Sleep is disturbed because you wouldn't dare go into deep sleep if there was still a threat. Um, your gut of course, probably isn't working very well because you're used to um, blocking it so that you can run. And all this results in low mood, irritability, easy reaction to feeling bad and down on yourself. And I uh, think some of you may be listening and saying, hey, that sounds like long COVID. Well, it isn't, but it it's like it. And I think to, for all of us to be kind to ourselves now for really another year um, because we will take a long time to recover right now. And in future, should you have any big stresses like, I don't know, maybe uh, somebody you love has an accident and has to be in hospital for a while and you're really, really on high alert care, helping care for them, then you care for yourself also for up to... I think 12 weeks is not inconsiderable afterwards. It used to be called convalescence, and we don't do it enough now. So may I urge you to be kind to yourself when you have been highly stressed, because your body needs time to come back to normal. And I think that sort of leads in so well to dogs, because quite often when our dogs are experiencing stress in front of us, we don't focus on ourselves with a caregiver and we focus on that first and so we take on not only the stress of being that caregiver but the stress that our dog is feeling and the worry that we have for them because they are such valued members of our family and going through that list that list of of brilliant examples of, of the ways that you know that our body responds to stress pretty much all of that is going to be mirrored in our dogs. So oh. when we see um, our dogs sort of ramping up, when they see something that's starting to to stress them out, you might see them do that pre-bark. They're like, huff, huff, huff. And they're sort of really over, uh, over um, sort of breathing. They might be sniffing furiously on the floor. Um, you can see that highlight. You can see body language changes that obviously they're going to be kind of uh, preparing themselves and watching what is in the environment around them. Um, Interestingly, with the sweating, when we know that dogs can't sweat in the same way that us humans do, um, and so that's why it's so important that they're able to pant, um, but they can sweat through the pads of their paws. And so if we oh. see dogs who are have, say, separation-related challenges, so they're, they're really worried when they're left at home for whatever reason, there's many things that we can, that can be uh, related to that, um, you may see little paw pads uh, prints around your home if you've got say wooden floor um, and that can be a sign that actually your dog was stressed when they were out um, so that's an interesting one I think Gosh, to, yes. to um to talk on and I also love the fact that you mentioned about hunger because particularly when we're thinking about behavioral modification dog training in traditional ways um which isn't always the way I approach things. But if we think about it in traditional ways, we're often trying to use food to change our dog's emotional response to things. Yeah. Um, and we know that, that food's just a huge part of our, our dog's enjoyment of life. They, they have limited choice in terms of activities they can do, um, you know, sniffing, chewing, uh, playing, uh, eating, <laughs> sleeping, <laughs> drinking, 
cuddles with you but though a lot of those are decided on by us so um food is huge because that is one of those small amount of activities that they can do um, and it can make them feel so good because we can create happy hormones when we're chewing or when we're eating and getting that good quality food into our body um, but if they don't not only sort of for, for welfare and, and sort of survival of the dog in terms of calories and everything if they don't feel the need for food or if they've lost their enthusiasm for it through how they're feeling mm -hmm. with stress then they're not going to be seeking out those social connections with us. Um, and more importantly, the learning opportunities that come from those social connections. So if they're not looking to us to say, hey, what what should we do in this situation? Or um, help me to, to know what to do or facilitate me to do what it is that I really love that's going to make me feel better. Um, you know, for a lot of dogs, it might be that movement makes them feel better. So if we can help encourage that uh, when they're feeling stressed and they get tense and they kind of freeze because they don't know what to do next, um, encouraging movement by using food throws and things like that can be really useful. Oh. So, yeah, if we're trying to work through behavioural challenges for our dogs, um, if we're trying to emotionally support them, then if they are stressed and if they're in that, particularly that sort of toxic level of stress where they can't take in food or learning opportunities, then we are setting ourselves up for failure. And and I think that's when when our dogs do get too reliant on that fight flight system when they become little cavemen living in our in our homes, mm -hmm. um, that they can't reason and process information. Um, and so no learning happens. And if no learning is happening, then we can't help them to move forward with whatever challenge it is that they're experiencing at that time. Wow. I mean, that that's so that makes me almost want to cry because, you know, they would like to do it, but they can't. And you reminded me of one of the treatments we use with little kids, only with little kids, uh, with phobias. And that is that we slowly introduce whatever it is they're afraid of, the spider or uh, the bugs or whatever they're afraid of, the dogs sometimes, um, while giving them little treats. Because if they eat the treat and are able to digest it, then we know we're moving slowly enough because their fear hasn't overwhelmed their desire to be hungry. Um, and it's a good yeah. gauge. And I think, you know, where we have to obviously always be careful of the fact that we're not using food as a bribe to keep the dog in an environment it feels too stressed in. Um, oh. Obviously, it's not going to be at a level where if they were too stressed, as you say, they wouldn't be able to take that food. They wouldn't be able to process and, um, and consume the food because their body would reject it. But we do need to be mindful that we don't put our dogs in a situation where the potential to earn food is just tipping over the stress they're feeling. And so that's why working at distance, allowing our dogs to do things that they'd freely want to do, um, that you know matches their personality, matches what they love to do, that is really important, as well as obviously all the stuff that we need to do to kind of create balance. Um, when you were talking about you know the pandemic effect, the pandemic has affected our dogs as well. And some of our dogs may be feeling more stress because they've lived in a busier home environment. And that 
isn't to say that they haven't lived their best life having their humans around them so much, but they also haven't had the chance to rest and um, uh, have calm time as much as normal because there's been, um, you know, somebody on the on a work call, kids homeschooling, um, more deliveries, as I was saying about earlier. And so when we have stress going on with our dogs all the time and they're not able to come back down, when there's constant triggering of different elements in their environment or their world that are stressing them out, this is when we can get to that toxic level. And that's when, just as you were saying with humans, we can get things like physical issues like digestive issues, suppressed immune systems that can all feed into skin issues. And, um, you know, a lot of things, I think a lot of itching in dogs is actually anxiety related, not just dietary intolerance related. Um, and behaviorally, when we're thinking about them, how they respond to things in the environment, the more of that cortisol, that stress hormone that you were talking about, Linda, so well, that there is in the dog system, the more likely they are going to be nervous and reactive because they have that heightened awareness. Mm -hmm. So we get this vicious mm -hmm. circle. The dog is stressed, so it's more likely to react or be concerned about something, and then it creates more cortisol. The cortisol takes quite a while to come out of the system if it's mm -hmm. consistently being created. Um, and so I think the one thing I wanted to just before we, we move on to how to support our, our dogs and ourselves is interestingly the one thing that you may not see with dogs that you mentioned there in terms of insomnia is that you may not see sleep de deprivation yourself although it may be happening to your dog um so How? we know through studies that dogs who've had negative experiences so maybe they've been out for a walk and they had another dog growl at them or um the post person just came and banged the letterbox really loudly it could be depending on your dog will depend on what is deemed as a really negative experience to them but their dogs who've had that negative experience will often fall, fall asleep more quickly than we'd expect almost to kind of remove themselves from that uh -huh. from that worry and danger when they're safe to obviously and not just going to fall asleep out on a walk <laughs> um but they will spend less of that time that they are asleep in rem so they're not getting down into the deeper levels of sleep that will allow them to process that experience and recover so what will can happen is is that you then end up with a dog who awakes more wired more worried more hyper um i often hear this from puppy parents particularly who say oh well, we took our dog out for like you know an hour's walk when really they should have only been going out for 15 minutes to try and tire them out because they're so hyper but actually they're it's counterintuitive they've gone tried to exhaust them but by trying to do that they've exposed them to a lot of stimulus a lot of new things and the dogs come home and gone oh gosh thank gosh that's over i can now sleep but they haven't had that restful sleep, the regenerative sleep or the yeah. processing time during that sleep. So effectively, when they're woken up, they were as wired as before they went to sleep. 
Boy, that's interesting. And and it has parallels with humans, but it's not the same. That really is interesting. I would never have guessed. But but of course, you're right. I have seen my dogs go to sleep immediately and yet wake up anxious. And I, now I see that it was probably, I can probably look back on that day and know why. Um, and that's really interesting with humans because a lot of my clients will say, I'll say, do you have a sleep problem? And they'll say, yes. And I'll say, well, what is it? Is it hard to get to sleep or do you wake up in the night? And and um, although there are a number that say I can't get to sleep because I have thoughts running my mind, awful lot say, oh, no trouble going to sleep. It's just that I wake up and I'm very te- There you go. <laughs> that was me putting I, that, my hand up there. <laughs> <laughs> that's you, huh? Well, that is so interesting because now I understand it in mammals because, of course, we are mammals like our dogs are mammals. So that's so interesting. Thank you. And, of course, it is a perfect place for me to step in and talk about um, how in humans you can try to de-stress before it happens. I have seven tips for that. And then I have four tips for if you already get stressed. If you find yourself stressed, what can you do to lower that stress? And this might be the point also to mention that we're going to end every podcast. I think we promised ourselves, didn't we, yeah. Caroline, that we're going to end every podcast with Uh, to borrow from Dr. Michael Mosley, just one thing. If I could give you just one thing from today, what would it be? And then Caroline will do exactly the same. So so maybe you want to write these just one things down and create your own little supporting both ends of the lead journal. Um, And I will dive in between Linda's points uh, with a a kind of overview of the or or a hint at what my just one thing might be. (laughs) Great. Okay. So shall I, I know, I'll do the, what I'll start with, if if this makes sense to you, Caroline, is the things that can keep our environment at a lower stress level. And then you jump in and then I'll say, well, what if it's too late? What can you do to get back to that cortisol balance and the adrenaline balance? Does that sound good? Perfect. Okay. I'm off with my seven. <laughs> and the first one, not surprisingly, considering the last five minutes of our discussion, is rest. Um, I never say sleep because you can't make yourself sleep. You can make yourself rest, but you can't make yourself sleep. And you know what happens if you tell yourself you have to sleep tonight? You get more stressed. So it's very important to tell yourself you don't have to sleep, but you do have to rest. Because now you're in control. And, of course, that's the key to stress. Being stressed is being out of control, feeling out of control. So the first thing is to say, be sure that you get the right amount of rest for you. Now, for most of us adults, that's between 7 and about 9 hours a night. But some people will need more and some will need less. You have to experiment. Um, And how do you experiment? When you're next on holiday or you have a break from your work schedule... Uh, even if it's only the weekend. Notice when you fall asleep by just try to remember the last time you saw the clock. It doesn't have to be science. And then notice when you wake without the alarm. And see how many hours that is. And if you do that three or more times, you'll get an average. You can take the average of that, and you'll have a pretty good idea. They don't have to be three days in a row, by the way. But that's a good way to find out how much rest you need. If you need to go ahead and fall asleep, trust yourself. You will. Don't try to make it happen. So that's number one. And the reason it's so important is when we have enough rest, then we can be 
we're more likely to be logical rather than emotional in our response to either worried thoughts or real danger around us. And that means we're much more likely to solve the problem of that danger, whether it's a thought or an action. When you're tired, you're emotional and you act like a child. When you're rested, you're logical. That's number one. Number two, probably make you laugh, and that is not to think about elephants. What on earth do I mean by that? Well, let me give you a little something to do. Uh, if you're on your dog walk, uh, you may have to stop for a moment because what I want you to do is I want you to think about elephants. Get a, get, get a herd of elephants in your mind. Everybody got the it? African elephants. Okay, whatever kind you want. They can have tusks or not, don't care. All right, now I want you not to think about elephants. Don't, just don't think about elephants. I bet nobody can do it. <laughs> I haven't ever had anyone who can. So let me try a third thing. I want you this time to think about zebras. Get me lots of zebras, really pretty stripy ones, munching grass or running or something. Got them? Where are the elephants? <laughs> They're gone. And in psychology, if you try not to do something, it doesn't work. It just makes that thing more delicious and more, not necessarily in a good way, but it's more you want to do it. So instead, you think of other things that crowd out what distresses you. Now you might be saying, well, hey, I'm avoiding the problem. Well, some of the time it's better to avoid trying to solve a problem. Sometimes it's better when you school run or when you're with your kids doing their homework. It would be better just not to address it right then unless it was a you know present danger. So um, sometimes you need to block, thought block. And you do that by thinking about something that really engages you. It doesn't, I don't care whether it's important to other people, but if you love thinking about how many different shades of blue there are or um, whether or not a certain baseball team, uh, sorry, I better say football team in this country is <laughs> going to win tonight, that's fine. That's or perhaps thinking about your dog and their favorite food. <laughs> there you go. Okay, whatever. Something that really makes you focus, then your worries won't be there anymore. So that's the second thing. The third thing is to take aerobic exercise. That's the kind where you're still moving, but you can still talk and have a conversation. But if you get so breathless that you can't talk and have a conversation, you're in what's called anaerobic. And that's fine if you want pecs and big muscles and things, but it doesn't control your stress very well. In fact, it mimics a lot of stress symptoms. So you want to keep it steady. What's the best thing you can do? Well, guess what? A dog walk. <laughs> Which you may well already have checked off your list now. <laughs> a nice steady walk, a steady, I was teasing a little, a steady swim, uh, riding a piece of cardio, you know, one of those bikes or, a re or ride a bike outside, but just leisurely, pleasantly and steadily. 20 minutes, well, technically after 13 minutes, you will notice that there's a change and that's because endorphins are released, a huge blob of endorphins which are feel-good hormones it's wonderful and it can last for up to two hours afterwards so that's a third thing is to make exercise a part of your life it probably already is for those of you listening because you're probably right now on a dog walk number four is to socialize now that thank god we can more with people you love 
Um, not big crowds. It isn't the number of people you're with. It's the quality of the relationship you have with the people you're with that not only will moderate your stress and give you more likely a, a good mood instead of a bad mood, but also don't, don't uh, be too surprised, um, but I was when I first read it, it makes you live longer. And while you're living, you're healthier. Those are longitudinal studies in California and in at Harvard, and it's really big studies, and it's really strong. So socializing with people you love. So go on a dog walk with a friend. Number five is to become aware of the things that tend to trigger you. And um, awareness means that you can put your armor on. And what's your armor? What is the thing that can prevent you from jumping into hyperspace in terms of being stressed? And that is the breath. I'm sure you've heard that before. You say, oh, I did that when I had my baby, or I did that in yoga class, or whatever. But you haven't done it like I do. You've got a good idea of it, but I would just like to spend a moment with the all-important, most powerful thing you can do to moderate stress, and that is to breathe in through your nose, clear down to the bottom of your spine, I mean really down far, to the count of four, thousand one, thousand two, thousand three, thousand four. You can go a little faster if that's uncomfortable, um, but as long as you do the three parts, the in, hold, and out at the same rate, you will do the right breathing. So it's in for four through your nose, so you don't take in too much oxygen, little holes. <laughs> hold it for the count of seven at that same pace. And then let the air fall out. Don't push it out. Just let it fall out your mouth to the count of eight. If you look it up on the uh, internet, it's often called the four, seven, eight. Um, it's also uh, called the sleep breathing because it's the best way to get back off to sleep if you wake anxious. So um, everybody, even if you're out walking your dog and it's cold, let's try one together. You breathe in. I'll count. Hold. Let the air fall out. Do one more. Breathe in. Through the nose. Holding. Let the air fall out your mouth. That's all you have to do. That is the most powerful thing you can possibly do. And if you think when you breathe in of your favorite color and fill your mind with that color. And if you think when you breathe out of a color you don't like and empty that from your body, you will also be thought blocking. You will also be thinking about zebras and not elephants because that's just a neutral topic. Okay, that's number five and the most important. Number six is to cultivate routines, and I bet Caroline has something to say about that. But when things are predictable in a day, um, then it's really likely uh, that you will, since you know what's coming next, you will not jump into hyperspace um, in your mind or in your thoughts. So try to have routines. Don't be rigid, but try to be organized. Hmm? And number seven is to focus on a certain kind of zebra. I want you to 
spend as much energy as you possibly can on things that you know you can control, like a healthy diet, what you're going to fix for breakfast tomorrow morning, or um, laying your clothes out so you know what you're going to wear tomorrow morning, rather than focusing on things that you can't control, like, I wonder what mood my boss is going to be in tomorrow. God, I wonder. You can't do anything about that. So focusing less on the things you can't control and more on those you can, those special zebras, is the seventh thing that I would recommend to you. And if you need a little help with number seven, think about how you'd make the choices for your dog. Because I bet you would feed your dog a good diet. I bet you would make sure that they've gone out for some good exercise or they've done things that they enjoy, like sniffing or playing with you. So, yeah, treat yourself like you would your dog, I think is a good one for that number seven. Uh, that's fantastic. Such such great things and and so simple. And some of those, you know, you could get done in one go by being out on your walk, thinking about positive things and socialising with people. So um, they really aren't make work um, exercises. So thank you, Linda. I think those are going to be so useful for people. Um, and here I'm going to invite our listeners, you guys, um, you wonderful pet parents to journal your dog's daily activities, their mood state, um, and what's kind of going on in their life for a couple of weeks. So what I'd love to invite you to do is to first of all, to note down how your dog appears in the morning. So when they first wake up, are they relaxed and snoozy, quite happy to kind of, you know, ease into the day nice and naturally? Or are they, um, as soon as everybody's up, they're barking at every single noise that's outside? How are they eating today? Have they eaten their food well? Um, and perhaps if you're somebody who feeds a raw or fresh diet, have you what sort of protein have they had that day? Because different proteins can have different impacts on how our dog is feeling. Um, what sort of activities they've had, whether there's been that eustress or that de-stress. Um, if there's been any disturbances, perhaps it's been bin day or deliveries, or if you did hear that large rumble a minute ago, there's been thunder perhaps <laughs> outside. Um, how's their mood state later in the day as well? So once they've, you know, it's sort of that time where they tend to ease into the evening. Um, what's their mood state then? Are they happily settling down with you as you're all taking a relaxing evening? Or are they, you know, demanding your attention as soon as you sit down and try and relax? And I'd also love you to guesstimate. I'm not expecting you to be uh, clock uh, clock watching, but guesstimate a rough amount of hours in 24 hour period that they've slept or rested. So as Linda said as well, it's it's about a balance of that sleep and rest. So ideally, we we talk about puppies getting, um, you know, sort of a lot more sleep and rest than than our younger dogs. We know our older dogs will also take that. Um, ideally, we'd love um, our dogs or studies have shown that around 12, 12, 14 hours of sleep is a good, good, good amount for a, an average dog. Um, but if your dog is more prone to being anxious or feeling stressed, encouraging more sleep and rest particularly um, is really important. And what we're trying to encourage is them not having that kind of one eye or one ear open sleep where as soon as you move an inch they're going to be up and following you around the house um 
And apologies if you're hearing the loud rain. <laughs> We've had a storm appear over overhead at the moment. I, um, I hear it now, but I was so engrossed. That shows what it does when you get really interested <laughs> in something. I didn't hear the thunder. <laughs> this is great. It feels a little like we. it's kind of storms that you'd have probably experienced as a child in, in America, Linda, I think. Mm. It, it's really loud. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but going back to our journal, we really need this data to see if there's more uh, sort of certain activities or certain days of the week that might cause more distress to our dogs so how um, if we don't have that information we can't really see how important for your individual dogs that balance of sleep and rest and what experiences are going to be the best ones for them to uh, enjoy to have the most calm collected and lovable dog in front of you. (laughs) That's great because um, you've brought up uh, something that is uh, I get so often with my clients, which is, oh, uh, yeah, I know that. I already know. I don't need to keep a journal. I, I know. You don't. <laughs> There's something called discriminatory bias, and that is that you we make theories all the time in our mind. You know, my dog's an anxious dog or my dog's a, a lazy dog or something. And then you only remember examples of when they are. And you don't remember the examples of when they aren't the way you think they are. And that's why journaling is so important. I have my, my human clients journaling all the time. So even if it's just a number, don't you think, Caroline, you know, between 1 and 10, where they're, they're 0 is they're totally calm and 10 is they're really hyper, if you just wrote that down at each meal or when they woke, and when they, I mean, that would be better... Absolutely. I always say just do an out of 10 rating because that is simple. I I don't want you to be having to sit there for hours writing things down. Now, obviously, if you enjoy that and if you enjoy writing your dog's little journey, then please do. Um, But writing down some simple stats about your dogs can just really help us to understand what is going on beneath their fur. And to bring up surprises, won't it? Quite often it will bring up, I didn't realize that, you know, the postman was that distressing to them or that when I open their fridge, they get that anxious because they think it's food for me. It's, it's so useful. Okay, can I, I'll do my quick four, but I don't even know if people need these four because I realize I've kind of already said them for what happens if you're already stressed. Now, this is not panicked. If you're panicked, that's a different story, and, and just changing a little thing is, is probably not going to be enough, and you may, you may need to sit down or call someone to be with you. Uh, panic attacks rarely ever last more than 20 minutes, and they are pretty rare, but um, if you've had one, you know how unpleasant they are. I'm not talking about that level, but just feeling, uh-oh, here I go, I'm on the way up, and I want to stop it. So number one is, of course, the breathing. Do 20 of those breaths. And if you've been practicing the breathing, whenever you think of it, it doesn't have to be at a set time, but if you are practicing it, you can do it. Well, I have clients do it on the tube in London, do it in crowds. Nobody knows. Do it in the in board meetings. I had one guy that had to do it in board meetings. So you can do it, but you will completely change your chemistry. So 20 of those breaths. The second thing, if you can, 
is to take aerobic exercise. Stop what you're doing and go sit on your stationary bike or go walk around, even walk around the house. It doesn't matter, but move for, uh, you maybe can't do 13 minutes, but just even move a little bit and be mindful of trying to breathe through your nose until you feel yourself needing to breathe through your mouth. And that means you're getting more physically uh, energized rather than anxiously energized psychologically so that that's another thing of course as you might guess distracting yourself get those zebras out so you might want to have a list of things like one of the things I'll do is I'll name every type of tree I know or you know have a few ideas in mind every breed of dog I know every dog I know's name you know it anything that will distract you from the the thought which probably isn't something that you are going to solve right now anyway you might solve it later but not now and number four to lead into Caroline and to close before I do my just one thing stroke your dog <laughs> if they want it and I know you'll talk about that Caroline but the thing is that if you are near someone or some one whether that's human or two legs or four that you love you don't actually even have to touch them but touching them makes it a magnified response you get something called oxytocin which you've probably heard of as the love hormone um, women in birth give uh, produce a lot of oxytocin which is we think designed to help you bond with the baby but um, the, the the point is that oxytocin makes you feel safe and it makes you feel therefore calmer it's a really powerful whoosh of calm and the wonderful thing is that the person or animal that you are getting the oxytocin from also releases oxytocin so you benefit both of you and studies have shown that our dogs also get that that feeling of oxytocin when we touch them so as Linda said, you know, we do have to be mindful of our, our, our dog's own wishes. And if they aren't comfortable being touched either at all or at that particular moment, um, then we do need to be respectful of that. So a great little exercise that can be useful, um, and this is a really good one to teach children uh, in their approach to dogs, is the three second touch. So you would stroke your dog three times making sure that you touch a part of their body that they would enjoy. So for a lot of dogs, that could be um, the side of their shoulder the, um, or their chest. Uh, one trainer once said to me that when we stroke our dog's chest, it makes them feel proud. Um, it's a bit like us doing the power pose because as they lift up their head, it makes them hold that body language of looking proud. I don't know whether that's true, but I love the thought. Um, but their chest or their side, avoiding that head, we so want to always touch our dog's heads and so many dogs don't enjoy that so three calm gentle strokes stop sooner if your dog obviously is very unhappy but if you do the three strokes and then remove your hand but stay close to your dog if they nuzzle in for more or they uh, sort of you know say look at you like why did you stop then you can go back to the continuing to stroke them but if they sort of have a little shake or they move slightly their body away just watch that and respect that and say that's my dog saying not right now thank you um and you can still as linda said get that oxytocin feeling which i love to call the hug hormone because if you're not hugging you don't have to hug your dog to feel it you can still feel as if you're hugging them from afar um 
either uh, just being with them, looking at them, talking to them, or sniffing their blanket so you get that smell of your dog. Mm. Um, whatever it might be, just by being near them um, will still give you those wonderful benefits of that lovely hormone. Oh, I think that's a great place to start because it's, a, it's such a beautiful such a beautiful picture in my mind anyway. Um, I, I would I would like to say to all of you that probably our future podcast won't be quite this long, but Caroline and I both agreed that it would be better to cover this kind of umbrella topic because it, it touches on so many other issues we'll be talking about. It's kind of the cover of it. Um, at whatever length it takes. So apologies if you've had to extend your dog walk today. You won't necessarily at all in future, but um, I, I hope that you've taken away some, some gems for you and for your dog. And um, we will leave you with not only my dog barking, sorry about that, <laughs> she probably wants me to finish, with our Just One Things, um, and look forward to seeing you next time. So uh, I'll start, and as you can imagine, the Just One Thing has to do with breathing. I would urge you, as soon as you wake in the morning, before you get out of bed, before anything else happens, that you do 10 of those breaths then get out of bed. Why? Because you start your stress thermostat on low. So for the whole day, you already start low. And things can only be regulated to be calm rather than to go into hyperspace so easily. So that's my just one thing. And mine is going to be that journal for your dog. Um, take the time. I, I know it can sometimes be tricky, but leave out a book, perhaps put a photo of your dog on the front of it. Um, give yourself that visual cue to make the habit um, of writing down those little pointers throughout the day of what their day has been like. And what we'd really love to hear is whether it's provided you with any insights. And if it does, or perhaps it raises more questions, then please do reach out to us because it might be useful as another topic for us to discuss here on this podcast. Um, as Linda said, we have so much more to say. But thank you so much for joining us today. We hope you've enjoyed your walk with us. And thank you from me too. It was wonderful. And I think I better go down and see who's probably at the door, which is why my little dog is barking. <laughs> Enjoy yourselves. And uh, we really look forward to speaking with you again. 